0: Welcome to the Foodbod Pod with Elaine Boddy and David Treadway with Matthew's Cotswold Flour.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the Foodbod Pod. And this week we have a slightly different and slightly longer edition for you but i hope you'll stay with us to the end our partner in this podcast season is matthews cotswold flower so david and i took a trip to their mill in the village of shipton under Witchwood, in the heart of the english countryside and what you'll hear first is the sound of wheat as it's delivered to the flour mill As you can hear, today we are at the Matthews Cotswold Flour Mill. I am looking at a wall of flour, a whole display of bags of flour made in this brilliant place. We are in the heart of beautiful Cotswold countryside. I can look out of the window and see fields. I can see sunlight. I can see just beautiful heartland which we are nestled in. And I can see this whole range of colours in front of me which represents the bags of flour, just a few from the range and I can see the very lovely Cotswold Crunch, I can see 8 grain, I can see Churchill White, I can see stone ground, strong whole grain, I can see a lot of flowers that I've already used and loved. And I can see even more that I want to try.
0: There's one row of flowers, which is all the flowers I use when I'm baking <laughs> so that's the David Row. <laughs> that's the David row, yeah, absolutely.
1: So we have spent the last couple of days here to enjoy the mill as much as possible, but also to be learning more about it, gathering more information, having more to be able to share with you. We've spent a lovely time with Bertie Matthews, the Managing Director of The Mill, who you're just about to hear um, an interview between him and I. We've also spent a great day with Sophie Carey, who is the Bakery Development Manager. So basically, she's got a test kitchen here in the middle of the offices, where she's trying lots of different recipes. In this episode, what you'll hear and what's coming up is... The interview between myself and Bertie, as people know, I'm a huge fan, but listening to him talk and his passion, I can't fail to inspire you. And we will be, in this episode, sharing one of Sophie's recipes, which are cheese and jalapeno pretzel bites. Now, David and I can tell you absolutely how nice they were, pretty much straight from the oven and a few hours later.
0: They were fantastic, hot straight out of the oven, weren't oh. they? At the head, needed to oh. cool a bit because they had just the right level. Yeah, yeah, just oh, perfect. But ten minutes later, when they were a bit cooler, they were just as delicious. They uh, were And fabulous. an hour
1: later. Whilst you were stood there with the well, they in st- front of you, well, I was still eating them. <laughs> what we uh, hope that you will gain from this is maybe a bit of understanding about the, the mill, Bertie's role, what's coming up, what he's created a fabulous recipe. We've got more recipes to come from Sophie, some news to come from the mill, so I hope you really enjoy my conversation with Bertie Matthews. I'm here with one of my most favourite people on the planet, Bertie Matthews, who is Managing Director for Matthews Cotswold Flour.
2: Hello. Wow, that is... (laughs) very <laughs>
1: <Thank you. laughs> <laughs> well you know for anybody that doesn't already know us and hasn't watched or heard anything that we've done before we're good friends aren't we yeah. so like, we don't need to be too professional here but you know that i love you and everything you do so you are the managing director of your family mill just give us a bit of background of what what does your job entail so what is your day-to-day role in the running of the mill
2: Yes. Yeah, so um so as a managing director of the business you know my job is to run um run the business in the most successful way possible and um we we are a relatively small team so we have a team of millers and we have a team of packers and logistics and um you know a couple of people in sales and marketing and really it's it's my job to pull it all together and go towards one um, one sort of singular strategy and one sort of um, one sort of vision. So to make sure that we are progressing on that road and make be sure people know uh, what to do. But um, really, you've got to cover all of the bases, all of those things that are going on, make sure that they're running smoothly.
1: I mean, I've seen you around the mill, because the first time I came here, you were the person that ran the mill tour for me. And I saw just how much you love this place, how much you love the flower, how you managed to get flour, pretty much all over you, just as you were talking. So, do you actually get to go out on the mill floor on a regular basis still?
2: Oh yeah, I, I, I'm very fortunate in my job that uh, <clears throat> you know I get to go and see customers. I get to go and um, go and walk on the farms and meet the farmers. Get to go and see them, you know, go into the mill and see all the progression that we're doing there. You know, we were talking earlier about the guys on the on the shop floor in the warehouse, you know, going going and checking stock and having a chat with them because. You really need to do that to, to sort of know what's going on in, in reality. And um, I don't really like being sat at my desk all day.
1: No, I can't imagine <laughs> you do.
2: <laughs> as much as I have to be there a lot, it's, uh, it's far more interesting to, to, to get out. So yeah, it, it, I'm very fortunate that it is, a, it, it is an active role.
1: So for people that don't know Matthews, could you just give us a short history of the company? When was it started? How it's got to here?
2: So it's not unfamiliar for flour milling companies in the UK, of which there's only really 20, there used to be hundreds, um, for them to be family business. And we're no different in that respect. We were farmers in sort of the 1700s, 1800s. So eight generations ago, my great, 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 whatever it is, moved to the Cotswold to a place called Fivefield and set up a farm. Right. And on that farm, they were trading grains and they were sending their, their wheat quite far away to then go and be milled some, somewhere else. So at this point, at the beginning of the 1800s, we're, we're talking about the, the what they call the Agricultural Revolution. So where we started to produce way more wheat in this country and way more food. And what happened after that was um, you had basically this sort of milling revolution. And the relevance to this is that we went from traditional lots of traditional stone mills all around the country to something called roller milling, which is the, what the way that most mills produce flour today. So at that time, my great-great-great-great-grandfather decided to build a mill on along the train tracks a, near the river. Um, it was the Great Western Railway that started in the 1850s. So the idea was to build a mill there and use all of the local grain rather than sending it off from miles away and do all the milling for the local area. So um, th- th- that's how we started, basically as farmers and following on from, from the things that were going on in the country at that time. Uh, and over time it has developed and p- passed through the generations. And, you know, we used to do it a bit more traditionally. And we had horses carting round flour all over the place and loading them onto the railway. Um, and then that stopped. And then you sort of, where we are today is, you know, the mill is a lot bigger. We're producing lots of different types of flowers. And um, and I took over from that as MD three years ago now, but I joined the business about five, five six years ago. But I grew up about 100 metres away. Yeah, the so house
1: is opposite, in the road
2: right opposite. It's, it? it's opposite, yeah. So I'm very familiar with the area.
1: So, <laughs> when, what year was this mill first built?
2: So the, the mill was built um, as you see it today in 1912. There was a building um, here previous to that, a couple of hundred years old. So it was sort of built on the top of that building, and we're still milling from that same building.
1: So
2: the oldest part here is 1912. You haven't got anything that's original from before that. Oh, the oldest part is, you know, 1600s, 1700s at the bottom. Oh, OK. Um, so we've used the building material to build on top of that. And in, in the village that we're in, which is very normal for a lot of villages, there were actually six mills in the village, because it's actually quite a big village. And that's typical of um, sort of Middle Ages, seventeen, eighteen hundreds, 1800s. And that, now there's obviously only one. And, and that's happened, and that's happened across the UK, because less mills producing more. So you don't need as many milling mills. <laughs> um, and the ones that you do have are getting bigger. And sort of, it's similar for us, but we're still probably, I, I think we are probably the smallest commercial flour mill in the country as a comparison.
1: I remember when I came to the first mill tour and you took us all up and stood on the roof and you were explaining about how every village is five miles apart every one of those villages would have had their own stone
2: yeah.
1: milling for the village. Yeah. And so that was the original until the Industrial Revolution came along and you started to have bigger mills. Is that Am I right yeah, yeah. from my I memory? Yeah,
2: I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, we produce 5 million tonnes of flour in the UK every year. Um, obviously, we would have been producing a lot less um, 100, 200 years ago, but we simply didn't have a way to transport it. So... The so lo- hence they
1: kept it in their yeah, villages? Because you had to,
2: because it, it, it was a localised food economy. And people talk about a lot about that now, about wanting to revert back to a localised food um, economy, which is, which is fantastic. And the one reason we don't do that is normally because people would prefer a cheap price of food over a local food that potentially might be a little bit better. Um, but I think it is happening. But yeah, that's, that's why whoever's listening to this will, somewhere in their village or their town, they will drive past somewhere... Called Miller's Street, Miller's Lane, Old Mill. I'm telling you, it'll be there. And now I've said it, people will notice that.
1: Okay, uh, but also, I guess that ties in with they. And often in places, there was the single oven, wasn't there as well? So people were taking their bread to be baked in a single place as well. So it was a real community thing. Bread. Oh
2: yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think, and think, it has been, you know, since the very beginning. And it, and again, I think that is happening more now, and particularly as we've seen in the last couple of years, there's been a huge actual growth in small bakeries and a lot a lot of these small bakeries that we see are people that have picked up the skill from their kitchens yeah. and I'm not talking huge amounts of bread they're baking they're baking for their community mm-hmm. their street they're part of the village or their village and it's happening a lot I um, mean I think that's really nice
1: and we talk about this a lot because you and I both love home bakers home cooks and that community feel and I know with everything I do in my sourdough world. I mean, there is such a strong sense of community. And I think it was only enhanced with lockdown because you had people baking for their friends and family, people dropping bread off. And so I, to me, there is a bit of a harking back to that. We're starting to get more of a feel of that community feel again, of people wanting home baked products, but also the sharing elements and the excitement and, you know, I see it just from, because my, my sourdough world is international, and you can hear people, you know, read people talking about it from every country, that they're creating these little, you know, bakeries, like you say, of their own. Suddenly, yeah. they're, they're baking not just for their family, but for their friends. And it's just, oh, I, I know it's the kind of thing that you and I get excited yeah, about. <laughs> but, but, it, but it is, and
2: I think, I, I, I think it's dual-led, and we spoke about this before, if people have a passion for something, and if people are ba- really passionate about baking, that then leads to, you know, businesses and entrepreneurs trying to make it easier for those people to bake. And you think of the the things available to you online today—not only sort of the range of products that you can bake with, but also it's becoming easier to do it. You know, smaller ovens, those little pizza ovens. You yeah. know, equipment that's making it easier. So. the the home bakers of this world are sort of leading (laughs) leading the businesses into creating these new new things and these new offerings. So it's it's fantastic.
1: What is your philosophy for Matthews? I mean, what is the company philosophy? Do you think that ties in with that?
2: So we, I mean, we have something called a vision statement and I think it's really important and I do harp on about it constantly (laughs) with everyone here. You know, how are we delivering on this vision statement? And for us, it's about creating baking products that enhance taste, nutrition, understanding and experience. And what underlines that is sourcing it from a regenerative agricultural model. So the reason that that is our vision statement is you've got to produce a tasty product, otherwise it's not going to get used. Yeah. And, and exploring tastes and different type of tastes, that's really key. Two, flour ha- ha is a huge part of the world's nutritional intake. And I'm not necessarily just talking about protein, but I'm talking about calcium. I'm talking about uh, soluble fibre. It's absolutely vital for people's nutrition. So how can we take a baseline and actually develop that baseline into more nutritious products that are better for you, that are easier to digest? Mm -hmm. Then there's the understanding element is key. and, And, you know, you play a huge role in this, you know, with everything that you do, is that a big barrier to entry to cooking, to, you know, just baking or anything like that is oh, I don't really know how to do that. You know, I'm not really sure how I'm going to do that. When actually, if you've got somebody that can walk you through those steps, that you can trust, that you can easily access via Instagram or Facebook or a video or a podcast, then that's going to give people the confidence to explore (coughs) and hopefully explore something that tastes great and is nutritious. So, you know, this is why any, you know, people like you, Elaine, are so inspiring, and one of our jobs as part of that vision statement is to support the people who are promoting that education piece. Mm-hmm. And the last bit is the fun bit. You know, it's the experience. We talked about these small home bakers who are starting a make a micro bakery. That's a new experience for the people that they're providing bread to. Whether it's a baking course or coming to do a farm walk or a mill tour, making that experience and being involved in something is so much greater that people you know, you're following on from people's passions of something and they're exploring it even further. Which is why, well, I'll happily have anyone to the mill. I can only take 12 round at a time, though. But, <laughs> yeah, before you go for that, Yeah, I'm I know, I know. So, so really, really, that's our vision. Basically, whatever we do, what are we doing to improve taste, nutrition, understanding and experience? You know, which, which one of these things that we're currently doing is driving one of those four things? That's, that's the overriding aim. I,
1: I, I love this, because I love your philosophy, but also the the sheer passion of it. You're, you're not here crunching numbers, you're here making people's experience of using your products as special as possible. Um, and I know because of the conversations I have, the, the difference quality flour makes. You know, and if I, when I'm trying to diagnose something, when someone contacts me to ask about what's going on with their dough or their loaf, the first thing I'm doing is saying, where do you live? Because so it gives me an understanding of their temperature and mm. what their water's like. And what exact brand and type of flour are you using? And anybody that thinks that flour is just flour, it just, they're missing a trick because there is, there's so much choice, there's so much diversity, but they, it's how they behave is so different. So, which comes back, you know, the education part for me is massive. Yeah. And when I first started out and I was told to go and buy strong white bread flour, I just went to my local supermarket and bought something that said strong flour in it without any concept or understanding. And it was only because I then got excited about the process, I went back and bought, oh, let's try that. What's that thing? What's that? And bought all the different flowers and started to experiment and became aware of what these different flowers were doing that I ended up with my first book because the publisher wanted somebody that was working with ancient grains, working with different flowers, And they could see what I was experimenting with. And, you know, the the range that you offer gives people such a way to experience that. And it's, yes, overall, you want it to be about the flavour and the taste sensation. But for me, a lot of the fun is that, is actually the working with it and the feel of it. And that feel in your dough, which is why you often get videos and messages from me going, oh, this is, this is amazing and the, the different things this does. <laughs> but which leads me on to my question then about, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at your wall of flour and all of mm. your bags of flour. So you, you have now an amazing range. So how many flowers have you got in the range now?
2: Over 100. The problem with that vision statement and developing a range is that operationally it is very difficult to produce yeah. that kind of stuff.
1: If you want to make anything that needs flour, you have the answer within your range, basically.
2: Yeah, we do, but I think one of the reasons that we have so much is that you know, you're never going to come across something interesting or, wow, this is a really incredible taste or, wow, this has a really incredible nutritional quality. You're never going to discover that unless you try. Yes. So, I mean, we, we may, may not keep all of them going all the time, but we certainly will keep experimenting. You know, we've got 18 in development now we have got
1: 18 more flowers in development. Um, We've got
2: 18 more flowers in development now. I think we'll be able to do 10 or 12, hopefully, this year.
1: Something that you mentioned earlier when you were talking was about regenerative farming. Yeah. So could you explain to our listeners what does that mean and how, how is it practiced by or how does that impact what you do?
2: I think of everything that we do, and if I am still doing this in 30 years, which I probably will be, and I think I look back... Regenerative agriculture is going to be the thing that is going to, I think, potentially we could be most proud of. We are a part of a much wider thing going on, um, and I'll explain what it is. So, your food today, good ninety-five percent of it, is produced using what they call a conventional farming system, and what that means is is that, sometime after the Second World War, we basically needed to feed the world. We needed to feed the world quickly and we needed to make sure the food was affordable. That's the mission. Mm -hmm. We did very well on that mission. In order to do that, what we had to do is we had to use farming techniques that potentially devalued the soil, which means it damaged the soil. And we used inputs because we like, oh, we need to create more food. And if we have more food, there's going to be a lower price. So we inputted... Um, chemical fertilisers, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, basically putting things on the soil that are unnatural but allow us to produce more food. So that is conventional farming. It is important for the world because we need to produce food and that's the number one aim. But if we can produce food in a way that is more sustainable and people would have heard of that word before, it doesn't damage the soil but still produces enough food, then that's great. So what then happened in the 70s and 80s is you would have heard of the word organic. Mm-hmm. So we had organic, so great, this is better for the soil, better for the environment, not using you know, chemicals and fertilisers, fantastic. And, and my father was you know, put us as a mill as probably one of the first mills to do organic in the UK. And he was very much uh, backing that. And we still produce organic flour. The problem with organic flour, as you may have noticed, is that it is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Number one so if it's so expensive we can't it's not going to feed the world necessarily now it's a bit of a controversial statement So anybody listening as a farmer feel free to email me and we can discuss it but fundamentally it's been going for 30 plus years now and it's not there's not feeding the world enough as it should be because probably I believe it is too expensive mm-hmm. because you're you might yield a ton ton and a half an acre with organic but you'll do 3 ton an acre with conventional where we are today and People will hear about this a lot more is regenerative agriculture or regenerative farming or regen ag for short. And this is basically a farming, a set of farming principles that focuses on improving soil fertility and biodiversity. And it doesn't necessarily have to be organic, you have regen organic, but essentially what you're doing is you're letting nature do the work, okay? So you're putting your crops in, but you're not, after they've grown, putting a big plough through it. Because when you put a big plough through it, it opens up the soil and releases the carbon into the atmosphere. When you put a big plough through, it takes out all of the roots that reach deep down into the soil. They get the nutrients and get the water when it gets very dry. And we had a very dry summer. So if you've got a deep root system, um, when it gets very dry, you've still got water down at the bottom. You incorporate livestock, like sheep and cows. Now what does that do? The wheat grows up in March and April, sheep come along, they eat it, they pull on the ground, they fertilise the ground, it's not a problem because the wheat then grows back up again. And you're feeding the sheep, they're fertilising the ground, and it's basically better for the end product. And, then, and another example of this would be something called cover crops. If you imagine a row of wheat and a row of wheat and a row of wheat, in between that, in the regenerative agriculture, agriculture model, you plant cover crops, clover. Now what, why would you do that? Well, what that does is it covers the soil, so when the sun comes out, the soil is cooler, so more water stays into the soil, and that water can be- better feed the microbiological activity, which then feeds the nutritional quality of the grain. So essentially, it's a farming model that works with nature, reduces inputs, um, improves soil fertility, and what people talk about, and this is a big thing with regenerative agriculture, is that we've got this very thin layer of soil People talk about six, six inches, yeah? It's where all our food comes from. It allows us to live around the world. And the, f- the reason that this is important is that we need to reduce the amount of conventional agriculture because that soil layer is decreasing. And it's, it's, it's typical. I mean, in other places it's more. In places like Norfolk and there'll be places in America it's more. But there's equally places in America where desertification is happening, where the soil is completely eroded and you'll, you know, you'll never be able, able to grow food on there again. It's a really important thing, everyone says that they're climate conscious, they care about sustainability. Regenerative agriculture is about rejuvenating the soil, regenerating the soil fertility, regenerating biodiversity. Sustainability is about sustaining where we are. We can all agree where we are is not necessarily a good place. So we need a model that regenerates rather than just sustains. And I think this is the key point. We've had a model that puts value in your pocket for cheap food. Mm -hmm. But where's that value come from? It comes from devaluing the soil and devaluing biodiversity. And eventually we're going to reach a fulcrum point. You know, people talk about 50 harvests left. Well, maybe in some areas of the world, some it may be 80, some it could be 30. That's because the soil is degrading at such a rate we're not going to be able to produce food.
1: So does it not become then a false economy if you're making food as cheaply as possible and therefore, you're damaging the earth as a result. Eventually, you're going to have more expensive food because you've got to find other ways to farm it. Well, unless you continue with this, uh, you know, regenerative. Fi- fi-
2: find find me a politician that is looking a hundred years ahead. Mm. I mean, we used to do it. The ancient Greeks used to look 100, 200, 300 years ahead. For some reason, our politicians can't look past about a week. All I would say, all I would say, is just listen out for the term regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming. get Get to know get to know the meaning or read a blog post or watch a video. Yeah, definitely. And I've already
1: tried your regenerative <laughs> strong white flour. Regen strong white. And it's it was lovely to use, actually, really nice. Um, and the, the way that it handles and everything is almost like a whole grain flour because of how it's milled, isn't it? So it was, yeah, it was lovely.
2: Um, and what I've got to show you next summer, what I really want to do is I want to show you a conventional field, an organic field, and a regenerative field, and, oh, okay. and you will Absolutely out and out, see the difference.
1: Oh, well, we'll be coming back for that. Absolutely.
0: You're listening to The Food Pod Pod with Matthews Cotswold Flour, award-winning flour created by farmers, millers and bakers.
1: Continuing on the farming question then, are your flowers, the quality of your flowers determined by the quality of what your farmers are producing or can you take what comes from them and create what you need?
2: I think where you start is what is the product that you want to make? So you think of a nice big San Francisco sourdough so that's that's the product that you want to end up with over here what you've got to do is you've got to track back what you need from the soil type and the grain type So what the miller's job is going to be is like, right, okay well, if that's the end product, the miller will have to create a specification. And the specification will be based on uh, protein, uh, gluten quality, moisture, hardness, falling number. And this is the specification that a farmer has got to reach. So the farmer knows, right, I know that I've got to reach your specification, which means if I'm using a conventional system, I know what inputs I need to use to get that specification. If I'm using a regenerative system, I know that I've got to you know, get the sheep on the field another two or three times so that I get enough fertilizer on it to reach the right protein level. It all starts with the farmers and how they work with their main business partner, which is the soil. And, and they are the masters of what ends up being a beautiful loaf of bread. All they need from the miller, they need a specification, they need the grain to be tested, and they also need to agree a price that works for them. Because there's no benefit to the miller trying to get the cheapest possible price because the farmer on the top end of the specification on the really high quality flours is not going to be able to afford mm-hmm. to do what he needs to do to create that really high spec wheat. So if we've got Canadian flour or 13% protein bread flour, that would be the top end of the spec. And the lower end of the spec would be like a biscuit flour that large you know, machine plant bakeries use where the farmer doesn't have to sort of put as much effort into making sure it reaches a high spec because it's making a basic product, but then equally the farmers are going to be getting a much lower price. Mm-hmm. So can the farmer make money on that really low, high volume type product? But in short, they need to get the answer from the miller and the miller needs to get the answer from the baker and then it needs to go back the other way to get the product.
1: With all this going on, what do you see as the future for the mill in your time?
2: I think the first key thing is really fulfilling that, you know called it philosophy, that vision statement, so what can we do to have a definitive range of the ultimate range of flowers so that people can experiment with all of these different types of grains. I think we've still got some work to do we've got lots of product development to happen and what that will do for the farmers is the farmers will have more options of things to grow which is great so they don't have to just grow the same thing and have a low price so that's one thing. I think for us on the um, on the education and experience side we're doing some development on the mill over the next uh, probably year, year and a half. Uh, we're looking at building a, a baking school or classes so we can, you know, hopefully some people like you Elaine can come down and have a nice weekend in the Cotswolds with people. That's a really big part for us because we want people to be able to experiment here. Yeah. Um, we've got lots of grain growing on, um, on the farm outside the mill which people will be able to interact with and see that whole process. They'll be able to see the grain, walk through the mill, get in the bakery And create something great. So that from an experience side and an education side is going to be key for us and I think the the, the third element there's loads of developments we've got to do in the mill. Mm -hmm. Loads of tweaking of machinery and engineering and we're doing some scientific surveys on nutritional qualities of different types of milling methods and the, the last one for us I think as I've mentioned before is Regenerative agriculture is going to take time to really formulate, there's no certification body yet, so we've got to do lots of research and work with lots of farmers so that in five or ten years' time we can say, here are ten farmers using this model, here are ten farmers using a conventional model, and here are the differences we're getting in nutrition, soil fertility, biodiversity, so that we can actually prove that one is better than the other, scientifically. But that takes a long time because farming takes a long time in case you've noticed.
1: Know, it it's a slow thing. Yes, it does. Yeah,
2: very slow. Very exciting. Very patient. All right then, so do you bake? I do. I reckon that seventy percent of my bakes don't kill me, come from a bread machine. <laughs> and I tell you why. I tell you why. Because one, my partner. Doesn't let me have too much space, so that so the hand baking has to happen on the weekend. But I still want bread every day. Two, it's faster and it allows me to do a very quick test of all the different types of flours. I'm just constantly trying blending these different flours, constantly seeing what try and see what the difference is. And three, when I come home for dinner, I like to have two pieces of toast before my dinner. <laughs> Even though I get told off every time, I just like to have two pieces of toast. One, one toast and one just not toasted. <laughs> so yeah.
1: So it's a rock use, style
2: lifestyle. I'm not going to lie.
1: So you use your bread maker a lot. Yeah. So here's a question. What happened to the starter I gave you? I still got it. Oh good, are you still using it?
2: Yeah. You come, you come into my house and see. <laughs> but but even, even Steph, my, my partner, will be like, do we still need this? I'll like, yes, we do still need this.
1: So do you then, do you reckon you could give us three top tips for baking?
2: I'm gonna caveat this by saying, I think you've spoken to my very, very talented colleague, Sophie. I have, and she's been brilliant. And and, and she would normally field these questions. But I think for for, for my side, uh, don't laugh at this. If you're at home and you live with somebody else or multiple people, I think you need to negotiate a couple of key things. One, negotiate a baking cupboard that is solely a baking cupboard for baking ingredients and isn't to be moved anywhere else or into the garage get it signed on paper (laughs) that's key my second point I think for for obviously what we're doing here yeah is don't just make the same thing I mean quite often I'll blend things and it just doesn't work Mm -hmm. but you're never going to know unless you try it absolutely but also you're never going to come up with something really unique for your own personal taste profile unless you blend it Mm -hmm. and I think last weekend what did I blend last weekend I blended a French T55, an Italian zero, 00 flour, a Canadian strong white flour, and then I put a, a new multi-seed grain that we we're putting in, but at a very small ratio. It was beautiful. Lovely. It's like a really, really golden bread. It wasn't too white because we had a bit of dark in there and a bit of rye in there. It was amazing. And my third tip would be, if you've got your baking cupboard, you need to make sure that you've got like the right kit. I think a digital scales is better. Yeah. Because. It's a definitive number, yeah. and I think having your own stuff that isn't going to be used, I sound so bad now, that isn't going to be used for something else, a solid use of baking, um, because, and then knowing where that is at the beginning, because otherwise you're looking for something and then you can't do it or you can't find your score or whatever it may be. So my baking tips are a bit more domestic negotiation and, experiment, <laughs> and, experiment, about you. and experimentation <laughs> than they are about technical baking.
1: But I think it's also very valuable, though. I mean, as you can imagine, I have particular baking cupboards in my house. I have yeah. scales that are not used for anything else. Yeah. I have bowls that are not used for anything else, and I allow my menfolk to have a cupboard full of food I would not eat. Wow. So you know, there's a it's negotiation. Very of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Very generous. <laughs> and they, but if you saw the difference in organisation between the rest of the kitchen and my cupboards and their cupboard, you would know whose it is. Okay. So. A question I get asked a lot that I'm going to pose at you and see how you answer it, okay? Mm. One of the, my, I have to, you know, I'm with many people in that my favourite flower of yours is Cotswold Crunch. Mm -hmm. I know that um, we will have people listening who will be very jealous they don't have access to it yet, but let me just say, hold on, it's a coming, I promise. Bertie will agree with me, It is. he tells me. Um, But I'm asked so often by people in other countries, what does it taste like? How do you describe the flavour? And I find it very difficult because I just go, oh, it's lovely. <laughs> yeah. How do you describe the flavour of a
2: malted flour? First of all, what, what is it? You're basically taking grains and you're putting them through the malting process, which is a germination process. So the grains are being flattened, water is then added, germination is then happening, which basically... If you if you see this happening, we smell this happening, you can smell the contents of the grain. And what you're smelling is basically, you know, the outer bran and the endosperm layer germinating slowly. That is then heated um, and then added to the flour mix and then malt flour is added. And basically what you're tasting is a deep, moorish, rich flavour, but not rich in the sort of sugary taste, it's more sort of savoury and moreish kind of flavour. Kind of, flavor. of toasty. It, it is. It is. It is toasty, and that's because the wheat flakes have been toasted. Right. So that's where that toast is coming from. It is really, really delicious. And then what you're doing if you, if you're baking it and you're using a long fermentation process, long proving process, you're then further enhancing those flavours that have started during the germination process of the grain. So if you want a really strong tasting malted flour or cotswold crunch or in the UK they sometimes call it a granary flour. A long fermentation process is Sourdough is always
1: the answer you see.
2: It is. If only we knew somebody (laughs) that could bake good sourdough from home.
1: If only. One can dream. If there's only one someone that you could ask. (laughs) Uh, And on that note I'm going to let you stop talking. Um, I've loved this. It's Always a joy to talk to you and I hope that people have enjoyed it. We will be talking to you again as we're doing this. Once again, we thank you for enabling us and helping us make this podcast happen because we're doing this in partnership with you. Um, And it's a baby that we're both enjoying and I hope other people will enjoy. As Bertie said, if there's questions, you know, don't bombard him. Feel free to send them through to us via the podcast website and our email and we will see what we can answer.
2: And a big, a big thank you to, to all of your listeners and all the people that follow you. And I think um, I really, really appreciate all the support, but also know that you are a part of this, an you know, essential part of this journey, um, because what people recommend or what they're exploring or deciding to do, then basically it gets built into what we're doing. So people are a part of it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: You're listening to The Food Pod Pod with Matthews Cotswold Flour, award-winning flour created by farmers, millers and bakers.
1: I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bertie Matthews. What a vision he has, not only for the mill, but also for the future of agriculture, food production and the environment. And now let's meet Sophie Carey, the bakery development manager at the company and another very inspiring person. As well as bringing us a recipe today for the most delicious jalapeno and cheddar pretzel bites, we'll also be hearing from her later in the season as she bakes up an amazing Danish butter cake and demonstrates her recipe for ramen noodles. So let's meet her.
3: My name is Sophie Carey and I am the bakery development manager for Matthews Cotswold Flour. It's quite a strange role and it involves a lot of different things. Basically it's one third commercial, so looking after our trade customers, making sure that they are happy and having no issues. One third of it is marketing based, so creating recipes for our social media and our website, talking to home bakers. And one third of it is technical, so looking at issues that may arise with our flour and sorting them out, but also creating new blends of flour as well. And I came to this role, I've been a baker, I'm trained as a baker, um, so I've been doing that for a while and I've always been in product development and that's really what led me here. Well, it
1: sounds like a fabulous job to to me. There's nothing better. Well, yeah, (laughs) you're spending your time testing and baking and trying all the different flours. So does that mean every time there's a new flour in the mill that you're getting a batch of that to try? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. So any new flowers that come out, I take some with me and I bake up a couple of different products with them, just make sure that they're all working as they should, but also, you know, I'm always looking to create a, a good handful of recipes for every flower, so that if someone buys a bag, they can look at our website and know exactly what to do with it or maybe even just get some inspiration
1: because flour is not flour is not flour they're not all the same no. they're not even if you get 10 bags of flour that are called strong white bread flour they will all behave differently
3: yeah absolutely so
1: you've got this huge range of flours that you're dealing with here so i have to assume that you must have quite an encyclopedic knowledge of how <laughs> all of these behave now yes are you getting people ringing you up and saying I've used the witchwood blend why isn't it doing this
3: oh yeah absolutely you know I love it when test bakers or home bakers phone in and or 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 email me and ask questions because it means that they're curious yeah and that's the best thing about baking is curiosity that it gives you so I really appreciate that and and that is a big part of my role and yeah you're right it does give me quite a vast knowledge of the different prospects of each flower and and What's the best thing about them? What are they good for? What are they not so good for? What can I recommend instead? What are the, the properties of each of the flowers? Uh, you know, maybe one is better for sourdough baking. One might be better for creating a milk loaf. One might be better for fancy kind of iced cakes. One might be better for a really good rustic banana bread. Do you have any
1: particular favorites amongst the
3: range? Yeah, definitely. So for me, one of my favorites is the Heritage Fryfield Light. Um, That's a fantastic, it's what we would call a T80 flour, um, but it basically is a a different strain of wheat flour and I love that one for creating really rustic French style loaves. My other favourites I think definitely have got to be the Churchill, I use the Churchill religiously, I I love it, I think it's a fantastic flour, really good all-rounder for bread. And then I also really enjoy the eight grain as well. I really like oh, a yes. seeded loaf. We like so the eight grain. Eight grain for me is great. And then my final favourite, I would say, has got to be the maize bite for pastry. the The corn inside that the flour just really gives pastry a nice short bite. Um, so it makes it great for you know anything that you don't want to be too tough.
1: What do you think would happen if I added a portion of that to my sourdough? what do you think the outcome would be
3: i think it'd be pretty good i think you'd end up with uh you probably get less gluten development overall just because of that maize but it gives really great texture and really great flavor as well and really good toasty flavor so if you were going to make a sourdough loaf and add in some maize bite flour you'd get a fantastic crust because of that maize on the outside so, or as a dusting flour, it's fantastic for sourdough baking, the maize so can you So could you use it in a
1: banneton? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's useful to Ooh, know. Yeah. So if I was going to have a dough of which I use 500 grams of flour, mm-hmm. if I was going to re- replace a portion, say 100, 150 grams of yeah. the maize bite, I think, therefore, from what you've said, I would use a bit less water in the yeah, dough yeah. to allow for it because it's not a strong flour. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Ooh, <laughs> I'm loving this. So one of the key parts of our podcast is to provide tips. Yeah. What are your three top tips for home bakers?
3: Okay, so my three top tips. My first one is a bit of a boring tip, but start with an empty dishwasher and an empty kitchen bin.
1: Oh, it's not, it's not boring, it's true. <laughs> there is there. nothing
3: worse than when you get yourself flustered yeah. baking at home and there's mess everywhere but you can't clean that mess because the bin is full and you've got to take that out so if you're starting a baking project empty bin empty dishwasher or empty sink perfect that's the best thing to do my next tip is just push through it if you think that something's gone wrong you don't think your recipe's going the way it should do push through because 9 times out of 10 you'll end up with something that's still delicious to eat even if it didn't come out the way you wanted to and some of my best recipes have come from happy accidents so you never know what you're going to end up with but it will always, nearly always, be edible so just keep going with it because you might end up loving it and even if you don't it'll probably still taste nice Um, and then my final tip is just make sure you keep notes if you are a baker that is coming up with your own recipe if you're someone that likes to develop you're a bit more curious about baking. Just keep a few notes. Something I really like is this paper craft tape. It's a bit like masking tape, but I rip off a piece, put it on the bowl, rip off a piece, put it on the fridge. So you can write on it. And just write on it. You know, yeah. I rip this off if I've got a, a dough proving, rip this off, just write the time that it went in. Keeps you from having to get your phone out, get flour all over your phone. But that way, if you really like the outcome, you can go back to your notes and, and do it again next time. Otherwise, you sit there and think, "Oh
1: my God, what did I do to achieve that? How am I going to get there again?" You are <laughs> absolutely talking my language because I tell everybody to take notes. Yeah. If you know, if you loved it and you've taken notes, you can go back to yeah. it. Or if you've
3: if you hate if it, there's you something, you yeah, do. if
1: there's something about it you want to tweak, unless you've got the notes. Yeah. yeah. How do you know? And I, I've I've got endless books with yeah. things scribbled all over the place. And yeah. like you say you end up with flour all over yeah, your Yeah, just don't
3: use your phone because you just end up getting it messy or you leave it on the side and you don't come back to it but a piece of paper or a masking tape that you can write on anything just to keep a few notes while you're going you'll
1: really thank yourself for it later. Absolutely. And so uh, if you came away from baking is there any other tips in your kitchen as a whole mm. that you would like to share?
3: Um, I just try and keep things organised it's really enticing just to let your drawers build up with stuff but once every few months, just have a, have a walk yeah. around. Get rid of anything that you don't use, you don't like. Give it to a neighbour, give it to a friend. Try and keep as compact a kitchen as you can because it just makes things so much easier when you actually come to use it. And also, I know it's really desirable to have lovely-looking you know, homeware on your side, and you can get excellent bits of cookware that are beautiful, but practicality is best, function over form.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Don't we like you. Um, and the other thing that we are big on that is my big thing is leftovers. Yeah. To me oh, I love leftovers. Yeah. Leftovers is, they just make the best meals. So do you have any particular lovely thing you like to do with leftovers? Definitely.
3: I've I've got two things actually. So one thing I love to do for leftovers is I anytime I roast a chicken or use a chicken in anything. Um, I like to freeze all of the bones, the carcass, any of the sinew fat, anything we didn't eat from the chicken, put it all in a freezer bag. And then once I've got a couple of chickens worth of bones, I put them on with vegetable scraps and parsley and make a really good stock. That's my favorite thing to do with my leftovers, because you definitely use it all up. And also that stock that you make, if you turn it into a soup, it helps to get rid of uh, the common cold. So that's a really good use for it. And it's delicious as well. Uh, and then the other thing I like to do with leftovers, any odds and ends of bread that I collect that don't get eaten before they go stale, again, I put them in a freezer bag. And then once I've got enough, I use my food processor to blend them all up and get breadcrumbs. You can flavor those with garlic, lemon, rosemary, anything like that. And you've got a really nice, it's called a pangra tartar to go on top of your pasta. It's almost it's almost like using Parmesan on top, but instead
1: it's, you know, waste. <laughs> oh, brilliant, it's <That's laughs> fabulous. I'm sure that we will be back with you at another time Definitely, as well. Yeah. Email us, you can get in touch. The email address is at foodbodpod.com. Any questions at all, we can send some over to Sophie. Let's get on and uh, make some fabulous recipes. What recipe are you making for us?
3: The jalapeno and cheddar pretzel bites. Okay. They are just mini versions of the pretzels without the knots, so they're really, really easy to make uh, and they taste great.
1: And is this um, a recipe you've found somewhere, you've created? Uh, no, it was created, I mean, I'm sure
3: other versions of it exist, but uh, it was actually created by me and a group of friends while I was at university. And it's developed and developed on from then, and I still make it now all the time. <laughs> oh,
1: brilliant. I know that um, cheese and jalapeno is so popular. I know a lot of my bakers, one of the first things they do when they get to grips to sourdough is then make a dough and throw in cheese and jalapeno. Yeah because oh, it's, it's such a good mix. Such so a good combo. What's the first part of this recipe then? Where are we okay, beginning?
3: Uh, first step, so you want to get in a pan your milk, water, sugar and butter and you just want to warm that up and then leave it while you weigh out everything else to cool down a little bit.
1: Okay, so does this need to be completely liquid?
3: Uh, yes, Yeah. so the butter needs to melt totally Okay. Um, and it it wants to be just warmer than room temperature really and that's so that we get the butter melted but also to get the yeast working too.
1: Okay, now for me, Mm -hmm. Being uh, that I'm a sourdough baker, yeah. and I don't use commercial yeast. This can be really interesting for me because whenever I whenever I have tried to use it, yeah. I've never been that successful. Yeah. Um, so to actually, any tips that you've got with using commercial dry yeast successfully yeah. would be really useful. Yeah. I will clarify again for everybody listening: all of the details and quantities are going to be in the recipe that That's Sophie's right. written up. It's going to be on our website. So you can have a reference, and if you're watching us, you can see what she's doing. So we've got your melted,
3: yes, uh, stuff in the pan, (laughs) melted butter, milk, sugar, and the water for the recipe as well. Okay. Um, Really, the yeast that we're using because it's dried yeast, the first thing is absolutely make sure that it's in date. Right. Yeast out of date will not work it won't rise it will relax your dough make it really sloppy and that's all you'll end up with So it does it have anywhere. like a
1: reverse effect not that yeah. it just doesn't work at yeah. all it will actually Almost. have a reverse yeah. effect yeah.
3: okay Yeah uh, in you know in professional baking quite often there's a product called deactive yeast which is old yeast that's used to relax dough so, if you need to roll a dough out you know for croissants or so, you know anything thin,
1: yeah
3: you'll often add in a deactive yeast to basically relax it so that you can roll it out all the way well, um, so okay. it is important that it's in date uh, and then also you just think about yeast as a you know sem- similarly in in your sourdough it's a little pet that you have, so you need to keep it warm, you need to feed it and you need to give it time to grow so right. that's why we warm things up just so that it's not starting out cold and it will speed things up a little bit so as we go
1: along. The sugar, is the sugar a key factor in the flavour of the recipe or is that needed for the yeast? Both.
3: Um, it's not needed for the yeast but I like to add it for the yeast because it does okay. speed things up a little bit more.
1: Okay.
3: Um, the yeast feeds on the sugar, that's what creates the gas. So it's really great to have a little bit of extra sugar in there already but also for pretzels in particular um, it's actually quite a sweet dough. You have that salty topping, but it's quite a sweet dough. Yeah. It's almost an enriched dough, so that bit of extra sugar is really great to keep it moist and chewy. Um, so it's it's for both really. Okay, brilliant. So yeah. let
1: me let you carry
3: on. I keep okay. interrupting yeah, you. Yeah, no, sorry. that's fine. <laughs> so once we've got that going, um, what I'm going to do is I've weighed out my salt here. So that's uh, five grams of salt going in, and then I'm going to. In my bread flour, we're using our even load flour, but it's actually also the same flour that goes into our standard white, uh, strong white flour bags at the supermarket. So um, we call it even load for the trade. But if you buy the Matthews strong white flour in the supermarket, it's the same one.
1: Is that the one in the black and white bag? Yes, in the white. Okay, bag, that's yeah. what I use in my starter. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so this is the flour that I would use in my starter. Yeah. So I could buy a great big bag of that yeah, and be doing the same thing, so that's even load? Yeah, even
3: load, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm doing 300 grams of flour for this mix, quite a small mix really, um, but it's... Yeah, it's not too huge a dough, no, is No, no, you can really scale this up as you like. They are very cute little scales. They're good, aren't they? <laughs> I was yeah. talking to David about them earlier. <laughs> um,
1: so we've got the flour and the salt the in the mixing salt bowl. In the mixing
3: bowl, I'm going to, now that this is cool enough, you know, now that you can touch it, it doesn't feel particularly warm, it's just above room temperature. So this is for
1: the yeast to go into the for butter. For The mix. yeast to
3: go into there.
1: So I'm gonna put that in there. The yeast is now in the pan with the melted butter, water and sugar. And I'm just gonna give it a little bit of a mix. I, do, I think for me, when it comes to dried yeast, when you first pour it out and mix it with things, it never looks that like appetizing. It's not, it? it's because it's hydrophobic the coating of it what does that mean so that
3: when they've dried it to stop any moisture getting in and spoiling the yeast they they often dry it in a particular way or coat it with something that makes it repel water so when it first goes in you have to dissolve that first to be able to actually dissolve the yeast into
1: what you're making I had no idea (laughs) are you you getting all this David I didn't know that at all (laughs) so we've got basically a nice kind of murky brown yeah puddle water. That's pretty much it with some butter in there. So you've just used a bit of a whisk basically. Yeah
3: you can just kind of use a fork anything like that you want to just pour it all in. So the whole whole yeast mixture
1: is now going in in with the flour.
3: Yeah you want to make sure that the salt you put that in first uh, so that it doesn't touch directly the yeast in the water because if it touches the yeast it might retard it which is to stop it working efficiently um, and ruin some of its kind of potency okay Uh, and i'm basically going to put this on to mix just to incorporate all of the ingredients for three to four minutes and it's at that point you can see whether it needs a little extra water Um, if it looks a bit wet it's fine keep going with it okay because we're going to bulk
1: ferment it you'll lose some of that moisture as we do that. so for people that don't know what that means bulk fermenting means we're going to prove it
3: that's right yeah
1: so just on a slow
3: speed for three to four minutes just to incorporate everything
1: Okay, so the dough's been whizzing around, so how does it yeah,
3: look? Uh, so it looks pretty good. It's uh, still quite mottled. If I just grab a little piece out, it's quite sticky still and there's not much gluten development yet, but you can feel it's nice and soft and it's not too dry, so I think we're, we're good to kind of ramp up the speed now and, and get it going for a bit longer.
1: So the fact that it's sticking to your fingers, you're okay with yeah, that? Yeah,
3: that's pretty good. It hasn't had any development yet, really. It's, it's purely been to mix the ingredients, so once it's had a bit more development, it won't stick as much. And then similarly, once it has its first proof in the bowl, that will help it to absorb a bit more of that moisture, turn it out, and it won't be sticky at all.
1: Okay, And so you're going to put it back in the mixer for
3: how long? For probably six minutes or so. I would normally do slightly longer, but then we're going to add our inclusions. So we'll just take the time down a little bit more.
1: You are gonna turn it off to add them or yes, you're gonna turn, turn them in
3: it off. And okay. And add the inclusions and just mix them on a very slow speed. Right. So you okay. don't wanna bash them about too much. You just wanna incorporate them in evenly. Okay. Okay. So that's been going for a little bit longer now on a higher speed, and the dough itself is much more smooth, it's not sticking as much. Uh, It does help because there's some butter in it, so the fat just helps to kind of release it from surfaces and things like that. So you can actually stretch Um, it
1: out? Yeah, I mean,
3: it's not particularly glutinous this recipe it doesn't really require it but uh, it's it's got a good enough development that we'll get a nice rise on it that's all you're really looking for here you're not looking to stretch it as far as you can it, it just needs yep. to be well developed no problem so what we're going to do next is we're going to add in our cheese and jalapenos so the cheese is diced into a centimetre Square dices, quite small, but you still want them chunky enough that you're going to get nice pockets of melted cheese. And the jalapenos are just pickled jalapenos from a jar that I have drained, well dried, and chopped into quite a fine dice here. So, it's how amazing. much of both have we got? Uh, 60 grams of both. And inside. you've
1: used an orange cheddar. Yes. To yeah. Give it some colour. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's much nicer when it has that little pop of
1: orange with the okay. green. Okay. So yeah, just going to pop all of that in. These so are these add the. Chilies and the cheese yep. are both being added into the mixer with the dough to just give them a nice even mix through. Yeah, so slow speed, you're just mixing them through so okay. that they
3: incorporate, and it'll take should, a minute
1: or you two. You don't want them to break up or anything like that?
3: No, so you need to go as slow as really you can but it will take time just to mix them in. Okay. It looks like it's not going to come together but it will. So out of interest. Could you mix this by hand? Yeah, absolutely. OK. Yeah. yeah. If anything, you know, sometimes that would be better because you'd be able to maintain the chunks easier. Yeah. It's easier, you know, for some to do it on a mixer, some like to hand mix. Totally, totally up to So what you get when you first start to mix it is the moisture releases, it looks horrible because it creates this little paste at the bottom, but once that moisture gets reabsorbed then that's when it picks up all of the inclusions. The 60 grams to this recipe is, it does make for a real flavour punch, if you prefer less you can add less, Uh, it's just personal preference. So just to help it along,
1: I'm just going to scrape down the bowl. Okay, what is it that you're actually looking for then at this point in the dough?
3: At this point in the dough you're looking for the main bulk of the ingredients to have been incorporated in. Yeah. If it ten- if it's struggling a little bit like mine is here, what you can do is just lift the dough hook up and, and scrape it off okay. so that it's all in the bottom of the bowl, that way it's not just moving it around, it's actually mixing it in.
1: Okay, oh so you use the dough scraper just to really bring it together? Yeah, again kind to of just sure. to
3: put it put it all together at the bottom, that way it will start to mix it in a bit easier. And I have done this recipe before with dried jalapenos as well. You can get those on Amazon or I found them before in Spanish supermarkets. They're really, really great for it as well because they don't add any moisture. But if you are using them, you need to compensate. So you need to add extra water to your dough to compensate for not using pickled jalapenos.
1: The dried would often be a stronger flavor as well. Definitely, yeah. So if you were going to use them, 60 grams of the wet ones, would you use say 30 grams of yeah, the dried and 30 like grams that. of water or something like something that? Something like that, yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah. It's a little bit trial and error if you're going to swap ingredients out, but it is worth doing to find something you really like. Okay, so at this point my inclusions are Incorporated, but the dough is still looking a little bit messy. So what I'm going to do is just tip it out onto the bench.
1: Okay, so using a bowl scraper just to get the dough from the bowl onto the bench. Yeah, that's right. And we've got an orange and green studded dough. <laughs> it smells lovely.
3: A little sprinkle of flour, and then I'm just going to finish it by hand just to make sure it's really evenly
1: dispersed. So you're just using basically a typical kneading action. Yeah. Just use a classic
3: folding method. Really, on this one. Okay, so I'm pretty happy with that. It's a nice smooth dough.
1: It's a nice see. little round ball of dough
3: <laughs> studded with cheese and chilies. That's it. So pop it in a bowl. Do you grease the bowl or anything? Uh, I don't. Um, no, if I you don't have do. a bench scraper, you don't need to because you'll be able to remove yeah. it. If you don't have a bench scraper, you can give it a Kind of brush with some oil, and then I'm just going to cover it and uh, leave it out on the counter for about an hour until it's grown at least double in size, um, if not more.
1: See, this this is what I just forget about using commercial yeast is how quickly the dough grows. (laughs) Because to me now, if that was sourdough, (laughs) yeah, you'd be sitting it on the counter for the next ten hours. But because this is with commercial yeast, it's going to be. A whole lot faster. Yes, it is. Um, OK, so that's, so that's, that's the first step done. First
3: step done,
1: yes. Brilliant.
0: You're listening to The Food Pod Pod with Matthew's Cotswold Flour, inspired baking from Britain's artisan flour miller.
1: So we're back with the dough. Yep. Which is nicely grown.
3: Yes, it's, it doesn't grow too much, this one, mainly because of the level of inclusion that we have. But equally, the beauty of this recipe for pretzels, you don't actually need it to grow that much. Pretzels, by nature, are quite dense, soft, chewy, with that yeah. kind of crust on the outside. So, I'd still is, say it's kind of doubled. Yeah, I would say it's, it's doubled, yeah, yeah, for sure. So just tip it out onto the counter. And this is where we're going to form the actual shape of them. So we're not going to... F- Kind of roll and tie them into pretzel shapes we're just going to cut them into bite-sized pieces makes it ideal for you know entertaining or anything like that so
1: you're going to chop them into pieces yes and then roll them into balls I'm, or... i actually
3: tend to just leave them i'll show you a way to chop them that Kind of leaves them nice so you don't need to do that.
1: We've got the dough on the counter with a bit of flour so I've it's not sticking. I've
3: not flattened it but I've just pressed it so it's kind of even in thickness. So it's probably about along.
1: an inch inch and a half
3: deep? Something like that yeah and then uh, all I'm going to do is take my bench scraper and first cut one way. Um, you want them to to be realistically you're cutting about an inch apart every time you cut so you're cutting inch long inch wide sorry
1: um, so you had your dough fingers. into a bit of an oval and yeah. now what you're doing is just chopping it into mm-hmm. pieces yeah so you're going lengthways across it and they're about an inch wide yeah so we're just creating some lengths of dough
3: yes and again it really doesn't matter if they're different sizes or you know like here you've got little bits coming off from where they've not been cut at the same angle every time it they're very rustic and it just Basically you're just getting them down into bite-sized pieces trying to keep them as even as you can just so that they all cook at the same time, but that's it really that's the only point of that. So now that I've got it all cut into lengths, I'm just gonna
1: go across and cut them into little nuggets. So what we had was a whole set of sausages of dough and now you're chopping them into little pieces. Yeah. So the doughs were about an inch wide as you chopped it and these are not much wider. that you're actually cutting them into
3: again it doesn't really matter if some are bigger smaller than the rest they'll still be delicious you'll still enjoy them you don't want them to be too different because it could mean that some bake quicker than others but If you get some that bake quicker, they're quite nice because they're the crispy ones. (laughs) So I can hear something that's going
1: on over on your hob. So what have we got in the saucepan?
3: So what I've got on at the moment is just a a saucepan, about half full of just water at the start. What gives pretzels their chewy exterior is typically a a mixture of lye. Actually, when you make them at home, you can do the same thing with bicarbonate of soda. So you want to boil your water. You want to add in a, a good amount couple of tablespoons of bicarbonate of soda and then every pretzel bite you're going to boil it just for 30 seconds or so and that helps to give it that really nice chewy crust when it comes out of the oven
1: so i find this fascinating because i think who on earth discovered that to do that with the dough but yeah that's what gives them that sheen and that little chew
3: and the nice dark color as well and it also helps the salt to stick to them i do like to salt these after i Boil them so that they uh, they've got that nice topping. Oh, okay. On the is this what the sea salt? That's what the sea salt are flakes are going to be for. Yeah. Okay. Um, so You're free to not salt these because they have got the cheese in. They sometimes don't really need it. But yeah. if you know, if you left all of the inclusions out and just made salted ones, they're delicious as well. And that boiling just helps to give the salt something to stick to because these are floured.
1: Currently, it wouldn't stick to them. So we've got quite a lot. Yeah. Of, of pieces here. And not a very big saucepan. We've not got a massive saucepan here. So you're so going <laughs> to do them in. I'm going to do batches of them. Okay, but if you had a bigger saucepan at home, yeah, you can just put I, the whole lot in in well, one Well, I still
3: wouldn't recommend putting the whole lot in because you'll need a way to get them out. And the only way to get all of them out at a kind of vaguely similar time if you put them all in would be to drain them yeah. into a colander. But in doing so, you risk squashing them down. Um, they're not cooked when they come out, it's just the exterior that's got that kind of rubbery right. crust. So if you were to tip them all out, the weight of it on the, on the bottom ones would crush them. So even if you had a big saucepan, bigger than the one I've got here, I would recommend just doing a few at a time so that you don't get overwhelmed when
1: you try and pull them all out. And you're going to use a slotted spoon or something yeah, to Yeah, I them will out? be, yeah.
3: Or you can just use
1: a couple of tablespoons. You know, just kind of go fishing. So they're gonna go in to the boiling water, which is gonna have some bicarbonate of soda That's in That's right. And then you're gonna lift them out and they go straight on a tray straight or do you on a need tray. to drain them. No,
3: they go straight on a tray. Any okay. of the this is one thing it's really important when you make this recipe to line your tray with baking paper, um, because any of that excess water bakes off really quickly in the oven, but because of the bicarbonate of soda in it, it can leave a residue behind, so oh, you it don't. Ruin your it could ruin your tray. So just be okay. careful and just line it well with some baking paper before you start. But there's no need to drain them. You know, get okay. every bit of moisture off them because it evaporates as soon as it goes into the oven. Okay.
1: Okay. So if you're going to add bicarbonate of soda to that water, it's going to buzz. It's, it going, to it's going, to fizz. going to fizz
3: up. So just be careful when you add it in a little bit at a time. You do want it to be quite potent but if it's getting too hot, just move it off the hob. If it looks like it's going to bubble over,
1: move it off the hob. I will reiterate, we have details of this and the recipe on the podcast website, so you can read it. And are you with the sea salt, do you put them in the salt or are you just going to sprinkle No, the I'll just over sprinkle it over the top. If you were to
3: roll it in, you might end up with too much on there. So okay. um, just, a, just a, a little sprinkle on the top. So I think for this size pan, I'm going to do about five of them at a time. You just want to plop them in and a good way to tell when they're done, they should definitely all float. So if there are any that are stuck to the bottom, just give them a little jiggle or use a spoon just to release them. But you want to go for about 20 to 30 seconds. It's not a huge amount of time, but again, with this recipe, it doesn't matter if you go too much. So Doesn't we're not looking for a color change. Little, we're just looking
1: for them to float.
3: That's it. And, and
1: and they've expanded. They have. Yeah. Yeah. You can see Oh my gosh. They've huge, puffed
3: up much bigger. And you've got a nice rubbery skin going on the top. Doesn't matter if on the tray they touch, nothing like that. You'll be you'll be fine either way. And as they steam off, you start to see really they'll go a bit more wrinkly, but this is the perfect time just to kind of little sprinkle of salt on each one and then the rest of them will, will join them.
1: So it's okay if they are grouped together on the baking tray yeah. because they don't expand too much as they, grow, as no, they bake? No,
3: they don't typically um, because okay. the, the dough that we're using is enriched with butter, milk, all of that stuff, it, it does prohibit the yeast slightly but what you're looking for actually is quite a dense mixture so you don't really need them to be puffed up too much anyway.
1: They're doing see, it, though. They, they, are, are, getting
3: they are getting puffy. They are getting puffy. You can see my water just started to boil over a little bit. So, so I've just it taken off it heat. off and moved it over to the other side. It doesn't matter if the bicarb gets foamy because, like I said, that goes away in the oven and it does add to the texture and the flavour. The only thing with this particular recipe is you just want to watch out that your cheese isn't melting away. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you've got any that are poking out, then it will start to do that. But it's not too much of an issue. Just bring them out. And what temperature do you bake these at? These need quite a high temperature. They want to be around 200 degrees, uh, maybe even up to 210. Um, they have quite a short bake, kind of between 15 and 20 minutes for these. Um, you really want that hot temperature to get a nice golden crust. And you don't want to dry them out on the inside. If you uh, if you bake them any lower and slower, then they might go quite dry. Okay. Uh, and that's not what you want
1: from a pretzel. And is it something that you can eat warm or would you be waiting for them to cool? Uh,
3: Either or, I quite often can't resist if they come out of the oven to have a few straight away but they're really good cold as well so it's totally personal preference, you just want to give them five minutes when they come out of the oven otherwise they
1: get um, piping hot and you hurt yourself. (laughs) So there we go, we have them all on a tray ready to go in the oven. And they're going to go in now. now time <laughs> for the pretzel bites to come out Oh,
3: there we go my timer's
1: going off look at that perfect timing yeah
3: excellent so they've got a really
1: nice dark golden so this crumb. is the pretzel bites coming out of the oven oh wow nice got
3: dark golden look at crumb, which is the bicarb really helps to to give it that
1: so this is you know that colour you get with pretzels, that golden brown colour that's come, I guess, from the dipping, isn't it? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah absolutely,
1: yeah. So that's yeah. what we've got on the top. And uh, you do get a
3: bit of leakage from the cheese, but it all turns yeah, into nice crispy
1: bits when you take the bits them off. the that you
3: can take off um, and try, isn't it? So yeah, you do want to leave them, because of the cheese, you want to leave them to cool for a few minutes before you dig in. Um, but yeah, the, you know, really nice kind of shine as they cool Really nice dark golden colour that you would associate with pretzels, and they smell really good too. Yeah, so just touching it, a couple of, a little bit soft. I yeah. take it they firm they up. They then do. Yeah, they the crust as it cools, it it thickens up and it it, it firms up quite a, a lot. They of never them go almost crispy.
1: Like a crackle look on. Yeah, them. it's almost like
3: a tiger bread. That comes from this not being a very, uh, it's it's a very short process for this mm-hmm. dough. Um, so you know, if you were making a loaf like that you would almost say that would be an imperfection of the loaf is well you've got that split or that crackle because it didn't have enough time to really process properly but that's what you want for this dough because it's so dense and chewy you kind of want it to be um, shorter development time
1: now what we're having to do here is keep our producer on the other side of the glass otherwise (laughs) he's going to be burning his mouth on these so this is at the yeah, you point must when, wait. Yes, yeah, that, that, that dangerous point with baking where you need to let things to cool, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you will burn your mouth, so please do let them cool. Yeah,
3: absolutely, yeah.
1: We now have these pretzel bites on a plate in a very beautiful pyramid, <laughs> yes. in a beautiful
3: pile. my oh, gosh, look at that. It almost looks like it could be a, a shoe pastry
1: tower. It does. Tower. They look absolutely amazing. But, of course, the proof is in the tasting. That's it. Should we have go? Oh, you, did, you don't need asking twice.
3: It's <laughs> a pretty good serve with um, sour cream. I do normally dip them in sour cream, but I forgot to bring it today. So I'm a bit annoyed about that, but they're pretty mm. tasty otherwise.
1: <laughs> mm. Oh, David, you're missing so much.
3: David already try... snuck
1: one. Oh, you tried one already? <laughs> oh, they're lovely. And actually, that is a really good hit with the amount of... Um, yeah, the chilli. The chilli and the cheese in it. Mm. And the fact that you got a little bit of cheese on the bottom where it's come out and mm. it's got it all a bit.
3: Yeah, the little crispy bits are, are the best.
1: Mm. This is brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're Good very happen. welcome. Brilliant. <laughs> I really hope that people try it. Mm, me too. Let yeah. us know if you do. And um, yeah, we're just going to keep tucking in now. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Um, I think I might need a drink. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Food Bod Pod with Matthews Cotswold Flour, bringing you Britain's largest speciality flour range.
1: And that's it for this episode of the Food Bod Pod. Thank you again to Sophie for inviting us into her kitchen, for sharing her recipe with us. We will be back with Sophie again. And thank you to everyone that's had us at the mill for the past couple of days. See you next time. Hi everyone. Just a little postscript from me here alone in my kitchen. As we share this podcast episode, it's nearly Easter. And so this week I have been playing around in my kitchen and creating my very own sourdough hot cross buns. I used my enriched sourdough recipe and I used some Churchill's white uh, Matthews Cotswold flour in one of them. I used some of their whole grain spelt flour in another one and I have to say even if I say so myself they all came out fab so I made three different versions I made two as hot cross buns and one as a loaf as something different there's also a vegan option so if you fancy finding out more about them visit our website foodbodpod.com for details and links or get in touch and I will be happy to send you details And all I can say is, David, I'm sorry you weren't here because I think you'd have loved them. Happy Easter, everybody.